Hi everyone, welcome to GPS Tech 337. My name is Judah Bernstein, and here with me I have Ranjith Rahman, and we are Senior Partner Solutions Architects with the AWS SaaS Factory team. Um, go ahead and pick, uh, uh, pick up your, uh, your headsets if you're not wearing them. This is going to be a silent session, so it'll be challenging for you to hear things. Um, so we're on a team called the AWS SaaS Factory, as I mentioned, and the SaaS Factory team is really focused on helping technology as a service vendors, ISVs, and technology companies with building and transforming their businesses by delivering SaaS or PaaS-like products. Today's session, we're going to dive deep with you technically to talk about how to build a platform as a service offering using Amazon's Elastic Kubernetes service. So what important thing to be aware of is that today's session is not meant to be an introduction to Kubernetes. I have this slide only to set the context that you should already know Kubernetes and its primitives if you're here today. I'm not going to talk about what a pod is or what a service is. There's a large number of sessions for that. I'm going to talk about multi-tenant design considerations through building a PaaS layer with Kubernetes, the community, and its primitives. So let's get started. So what is platform as a service, right? So one of the things to think about is a PaaS solution allows customers right, to not have to worry about the undifferentiated heavy lifting of managing infrastructure for powering these applications by having a provider operate them on their behalf. Many of you may be familiar, right, with uh, vendors such as Salesforce Heroku or maybe our offering within Fargate that is a PaaS-like solution. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about how you could build this platform as a service solution. And we're going to talk about it through a couple core requirements that we're going to set the scope of this session. So one is we're going to talk about how we're powering external customers' custom applications, scaling these applications for them, ensuring that these customers don't have to worry about deployment and that all they have to do is commit their code to some type of Git repository, that we want to provide multiple language support. Perhaps your customer is operating Node.js or Java with Spring Boot as an application, and you're powering this for them. They don't want to worry about what code they're committing. You need to power any type of application for any type of language that's common. And finally, you need to ensure that it's secure and that it's compliant. So with that said, I want to start by walking you through some core pillars of multi-tenant design. And then we'll talk about the core sections we're going to cover in today's session. So one thing to remember is there's this concept of a silo. A silo is a single tenant infrastructure or application instance operating one customer and that customer's users. Typically, you'd find like a product deploy uh, that's deployed in a managed services style would look like a silo configuration. A pool model is a little different. It's multi-tenant. It's where you have shared infrastructure or an application instance powering multiple customers and those customers' users. So the pool model is important to remember because today's session, we're going to focus on how you could use a pooled EKS cluster specifically. There's also a model that often we see in production. And we have to be realistic about what we see in production when we're working with ISVs. Some ISVs that are building SaaS or multi-tenant applications, um, they want to ensure that certain resources are dedicated per tenant in the silo configuration while other resources might be comfortable and acceptable to share. The bridge model allows you and affords you that capability. One common use case that each of you are familiar with is where you might have like a shared application and web tier, 
but where that database cluster or database might be a single tenant instead of having like a shared schema. So a couple core fundamental categories that we're gonna dive into in relationship to Kubernetes today. We're gonna talk about how you could achieve compute isolation. We're gonna talk about how you could achieve network isolation. We're gonna talk about how you could tier your products and your offerings for this pass layer. We're gonna talk about how you achieve storage isolation. We're gonna talk about usage metering. This is how do you know what your customer's consuming in your platform and how you could charge them for that usage. Especially in a platform as a service, this is crucial because you're gonna be charging them based on what they're consuming in your resources. And finally, advanced architectures. We're, we're, you know, we have a limited time, so there's a whole bunch of things that we could cover in this session, but we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna run through some of the, the top level things in much more detail, um, and we're gonna cover only a sliver of advanced architectures, but just enough to whet your appetite to talk to us after the session and tell us what you need. So with that said, Let's talk about what a typical multi-tenant Kubernetes workload architecture looks like. It's a mouthful, I know. Um, but what's important to remember is that you are looking to use an EKS cluster and the worker nodes that you have to power multiple tenants. So here you can see I have one tenant within a namespace. We'll talk about what a namespace is and how it is not completely secure and sufficient. And we have some type of approach to being able to isolate tenants from one another through maybe some type of network policy or approach that you would typically find. This is the end state of the architecture that we want to achieve at the end of the day. Imagine that your customer, customer A, is um, a typical customer that's uploading their application to your pass layer through some type of API that you provide. What you're gonna do is you're gonna power on their application within namespace one right? You're going to isolate them there, and you can power other tenants or customers in the system through the same cluster in different namespaces. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's the most primitive approach that we can do to highlight what we're, our end state looks like. So I have some bad news from you, for, you, for you here. So today, Kubernetes does not support native tenant isolation. And we, Amazon EKS, which allows you not to have to worry about the undifferentiated heavy lifting of managing the master nodes, um, you know, and, and powers etcd on your behalf, it also uses open source Kubernetes, right? So because of that, and because we have support for upstream Kubernetes, we ourselves do not support native multi-tenancy. And that means each of you need to think about the constructs that we're gonna indicate to you today through these primitives, the open source community solutions, the partner products that you could pay for, and a bunch of other things that you need to define based on your requirements and use cases. Um, there are two types of multi-tenancy. So by a show of hands, how many of you are in an ISV? Okay, so a handful. And how many of you are in a customer, an AWS customer? Okay, so the bulk of you are in a customer. So many of you are likely looking for soft multi-tenant design. That means that you um, nece don't necessarily, uh, you're not necessarily powering external customers. You're powering internal business units, right? And one of the key items here to remember is that these business units likely don't have an intention to exploit the system, right? There's no uh, malicious users that are intending to blow up the platform as a service offering. So you're focused on agility for your organization. You're focused on operational efficiency. But that's very different than hard multi-tenant design. And why? The reason is because hard multi-tenant design is what you need to power a true 
public pass offering. And what that means is that this is taking hard multi-tenancy takes things one step further. It gives you the ability to ensure that you can operate potential competitors in the same multi-tenant cluster. Imagine you have two financial services companies, right, that are strongly competing with one another. You can now power them both with ensuring adequate segmentation and isolation boundaries. Here, there's a key item to remember. These customers might, customers might want to exploit the infrastructure, and more importantly, you need to focus on tenant isolation. So let's take a look at some of the PaaS requirements. So one first thing you have to remember is in a public PaaS offering, if you're using Kubernetes and Amazon EKS, you don't expose the Kubernetes API directly to your customer. Instead, you abstract them from them knowing that you're using Kubernetes at all. They shouldn't know. All they should know is that they have some type of PaaS layer that allows them to operate their applications. So you have to build some type of API on top of the Kubernetes API or an abstraction layer, what we call the wrapper. You need some type of workload manager. And this is um, managing the state of those workloads and the declarative APIs within Kubernetes. So the idea here is if let's say you, uh, in order to power customer's application A, that's Node.js with Express, with X amount of uh, CPU and memory, what you need to do is you need to invoke the Kubernetes API through the wrapper to invoke and manage those resources, but you need to ensure that your customer knows the state of that workload. And that's where the workload manager comes in. It manages that state for you. A customer endpoint is interesting. So a customer endpoint is your public API or your single page application or client interface that allows your customer to interface with your PaaS solution and them having the ability to create that application through your provided interface. Deployment pipeline, you need a deployment pipeline per tenant. This is incredibly important. No customer wants to know that their code is being built on a server that's shared with another customer. So you need what we call a silo configuration as we described earlier for each deployment pipeline per tenant. So potentially that might be a CI, CD job within code pipeline and code build and code commit per tenant. Um, you need a monitoring service as well. You need to know where the state is of the customer's workloads to tell them, hey, your application is crashing. Here are some of the logs. Here's how you solve and troubleshoot the problems in the past layer. And then you need some way to meter. So there's a pass layer that we talked about. Let's talk about this pass layer that sits on top of Kubernetes. And then we'll talk about how to use Kubernetes for multi-tenant design. So we have a single page application here that you could see. It could be any type of static website, React, it doesn't matter. Um, what it's doing is it's invoking some type of API where you have the ability to authenticate and authorize a user. And what you're doing is you're actually using a Lambda function to decode the identity of that specific user within that tenant. So perhaps this is an OIDC within Amazon Cognito, right? OIDC identity, uh, OpenID Connect identity that has a specific username and password linked to some type of custom key value pair that indicates this is customer with an identifier of A or tenant one. Um, then after you know who they are and you figure out who they're authorized, uh, what access they're authorized to, then what you need 
is you need to be able to have them invoke, I want to create a new application. So here, what we're doing, and this, by the way, this infrastructure that we're using here really isn't the core point. The core point is that you need to build an API layer on top of the pass if you want a true public pass offering. How you do it is likely a nuance. So here we have the workload manager that's managing the state of these workloads, and it's responsible for um, you know, digesting the required resources that Kubernetes needs to you know, be able to be provisioned from a primitives perspective. It will make sure that it's invoking the Kubernetes API wrapper to say, hey, go ahead and call our EKS cluster and create a namespace and a pod and, and so on and so forth. Finally, we need the customer to know what the state of their workload is. So that means that we need them to be able to call some other similar API to say, hey, now that I've created my workload, where is it? So I want to hand off to, uh, to Ranjith, who's going to dive deep with you on how to achieve compute isolation at the Kubernetes level now. So Ranjith, come up here. All right, thank you, Judo. Hey, everyone. So Judo talked about some of the challenges in achieving true multi-tenancy in, in a Kubernetes environment. So what I'm going to do right now is walk you through some of the Kubernetes features that could potentially help address those challenges. And in my first section called Compute Isolation, I'll be covering some of the isolation techniques like you know, namespace per tenant, and how can you use service account for segmenting the resources within a namespace. And then finally, resource isolation with things like you know, pod security policies. So namespaces. So namespaces, it provides a logical isolation of one tenant's resources over others. In other words, if you have a large Kubernetes cluster, by using namespaces, you can segment them into multiple smaller virtual clusters. So the, the, there's, the strength with the namespace is that it provides an obfuscation of one tenant's resources within a pooled en environment, but there is also a challenge or a weakness with namespace in that resources within one namespace can still access resources, you know, you know resources in a different namespace, right? So now, as, as a SaaS provider, you may think that, well, I don't want you know, multiple tenants or tenants in my, uh, you know, my cluster to be talking to each other or uh, exchanging data or resources between each other, right? Or you know, or maybe some of you may even think that maybe I should just spin, spin up separate cluster per tenant. So the problem with that is you would soon you know, realize that it's, it's, it's highly cost prohibitive. Like if you want to maintain separate clusters for each tenant, it does not work out that well, right? And it also does not make a lot of sense from, from a maintenance standpoint if you have to maintain you know, individual clusters for each tenant. So you still have to think about how you're going to make this work in a, in a, within a pooled environment or, or you know, within, a, within a shared cluster. So Kubernetes provides an authentication and authorization module, right? So imagine a request coming into a Kubernetes API server. One of the first thing it does is authentication, right? In the case of Amazon EKS, it goes through the identity and access management service, right? So your request gets authenticated and then it moves to authorization modules. So now uh, the Kubernetes authorization, there are, there are several techniques, right? I mean, you, you have node-based authorization, you have 
attribute based you have things like you know web hooks that you, that you can create but the one that i'm going to focus today is um, kubernetes rbac or kubernetes road based access control one of the fundamental concepts in kubernetes rbac is this concept of a role right so a role is, is it's a set of rules which has a list of permissions and <clears throat> Then I'm going to cover uh, service accounts and how you can use service accounts. So you can think of service account as a, as a user, but the difference is it's, 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 within, uh, it's within a namespace. It's, it's, it's for an application inside a namespace. And then finally, role binding. So now we created the service account and we have the role. So role binding binds the service account to the list of permissions that we defined inside the role. And this is an example of a service account, pretty straightforward, right? So it's, it resides within a namespace called tenant1. And this is a role, right? Again, it resides in the same namespace called tenant1. And in the rules section, you can see that it has a list of permissions like get or watch or create or update over a set of resources like replica sets or parts or deployments. And finally, we have the role binding. It's again in the same uh, tenant namespace called tenant1, and it binds the service account with the actual role. So now, as a cluster admin of a SaaS provider, or maybe just you're just building a SaaS application, you may think that, okay, I created namespaces, so I, I, I was able to achieve some level of you know, logical isolation, and then I created you know, my Kubernetes RBAC roles and you know, my service accounts. So I'm all set, right? I was able to secure my cluster. Guess what? You're not, right? Because a user or a service account with, with an, um, a user or a service account within um, a namespace can still access the internals of the node that they're on. And they can potentially you know, wreak havoc. I mean, they can you know, uh, access file systems, access devices, unless you explicitly block them. And the way you would do that is by using port security policies. So port security policies, they are a cluster level resource that controls the sensitive security aspect of the part specification. And what that means is it, it defines what a part can do and what a part cannot do, right? It's also a set of conditions that the parts must meet in order to be accepted by the cluster. Now, there are several things that a part security policy uh, you know, can control, like things like EC2 instances file systems, networks, namespaces, and volumes. But the fundamental idea that you need to keep in mind is you are trying to prevent a, you know, a, a custom application of one tenant from somehow or by some means access a different tenant's uh, resources. Disable privilege mode. So this is probably the most important concept that you need to keep in mind. And I do have an example of this in my um, next, yeah. So, so this is an example of a part security policy where you can see that the privilege flag is set to false. So this means you're preventing a user from, pre, uh, from creating a privilege, privilege container. So a privilege container is a container that has you know, elevated access, a privilege access, that could potentially you know, uh, uh, access the internals of the node or access the file systems or you know, devices, right? So this is something that you don't want to allow, uh, in a, in a, especially in a multi-tenant uh, you know, cluster. And you can see that I also have uh, set uh, must run as uh, you know, non-root, and this is because you don't want a user to spin up containers that has you know, access to root privileges, right? That has root privileges. So one important thing to note here is Amazon EKS, starting from version 1.13 uh, and above, has the pod security policy on mission plugin enabled by default. 
And what this means is, so let's say you're logged into Amazon EKS cluster. If you do a kubectl get PSP, uh, PSP stands for Port Security Policy, you are going to see a default Port Security Policy by the name EKS.privileged, right? And if you describe that, you're going to see everything that I talked about. You're going to see like things like allow privilege set to true, allow access to host network set to true, which is ideally, you know, that's something you don't want. And the reason it's this way is because to maintain, uh, you know, backwards compatibility with uh, clusters that did not have, um, you know, admission uh, plugin controller enabled. But, but as a SaaS provider, what you need to think of is uh, you have to create a more restrictive policy. You don't want this, right? So follow the guidelines, you know, that I talked about in my previous slides. You know, so, uh, you know create a more restrictive policy and, you know, uh, disable the privilege flag or, you know, set, um, you know, the allow access to uh, the host network and things like that. So, you know, just disable those so that you can create, apply that more restrictive policy and then delete the default EKS.privilege policy that you see here. So I, I talked about, you know, how we can use authorization and port security policies, but there are certain things, you know, that you need, you need to keep in mind when, you, when it comes to securing a platform, uh, you know, from, from an authentication perspective, right? And one of the first thing is never expose your service account, right? So tenants in a pass uh, type solution should never have access to the Kubernetes API server, never. And pull secrets from walls. So, so think about how you can programmatically, you know, um, uh, you know, programmatically use service accounts to get or pull secret the Kubernetes the Kubernetes secrets from a secret uh, storage location like Vault. Consider federation. So, think about how you can inject the tenant identifier. Um, you know, if you're using an OIDC type uh, identity provider, the OpenID Connect. So think about inject how you can inject the uh, identity provider. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Think about how you can inject the tenant identifier um, into the request, so you can monitor the request that flows through your uh, cluster for you know better and you know for adequate compliance. So I talked about how you can you know, control and you know, uh, isolate some of the isolation techniques at the compute level. So I want to do the same thing at the network level. <clears throat> and some of the concepts that I'll cover here is things like network policies, the concept of a service mesh, and I'll give you some examples of how you can achieve monitoring and compliance. Network policy. So, so the Kubernetes network policy API provides a standard way for users uh, to to uh, to define network policies, right? So, the idea is to control the flow of network traffic, but there is there is a challenge with that because Kubernetes does not have an inbuilt mechanism to enforce that particular network policy, right? And in order to do the enforcement, you have to use some kind of a network plugin. So, for example, you know, uh, there are things like, there are plugins like Tiger or Calico or Weave or Romana, and there are a few others. Uh, and if you need advanced capabilities, you can use Tiger or Secure. So a big part of defining a network policy, it falls around or it revolves around two concepts, ingress and egress. So ingress is the traffic coming into the pod, and egress is traffic leaving the pod, right? And I do have an, so, so the example right here, it, it shows I've blocked both the ingress and egress on any parts in, a, in this particular namespace called tenant one. So this is sort of a best practice that you could follow, right? So start, always start with maximum restriction when you're building applications, right? And then slowly open things up, right? <clears throat> and this is a slightly more advanced example uh, where you can see that I'm opening up traffic between 
um, you know, the front-end pod and the back-end pod using pod selectors, and we are still within the same namespace called tenant1. And in this slide, I'm going to show you an example of a multi-tenant use case, right? So I'll walk you through a series of steps that, you know, where you can see that when I introduce a network policy that blocks traffic, you can see a failure, you know, of communication between the two tenants. And, and uh, I'm going to start off with, you know, uh, the commands that you see right here, which is kubectl uh, create namespace. So you're creating two namespaces pretty much, right? And then you would create uh, an Nginx pod, and then you would expose that pod on port 80 across, the, across both the namespaces. And then I'm creating a bash pod, or, or a pod which, you know, to which I have uh, terminal access to in namespace, in tenant one namespace. Then I create a, uh, you know, a cross-tenant traffic, right? So I try to uh, you know, you, uh, use curl and access both the Nginx services in both the tenant namespaces, and I get a, sec uh, I get a success. Now, I'm applying a network policy that denies all the traffic coming into the pod and going out of the pod. And let's see what happens. And now, you know, obviously you have to apply that network policy on, uh, you know, across both the uh, tenant namespaces. And you can see that, you know, there is a failure, you know, when you, when you try to, if you go back to the bash pod that we created in tenant one namespace and try to do the curl command again, uh, and try to access the Nginx service in tenant two, you would get a failure because now we, you know, we added a network policy that would actually block the communication or the traffic between, you know, the two name, tenant namespaces. So I touched upon this a little bit, in, you know, in one of my previous slides. So if, if you need advanced capabilities like, you know, um, uh, in-transit encryption or better monitoring, or if you need, you know, alerting uh, when there's a cross-tenant traffic event, right, or maybe, you know, you want to uh, maintain continuous compliance, right? So Tiger Secure is a really good option. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a paid product, but it's a really good option, that, you know, something that, you know, you can ch uh, check out. So now, Atlassian, uh, they have a multi-tenant offering on top of Amazon Web Services, and they use Kubernetes to, you know, to, uh, to isolate their workloads, right? And they do this appropriately using, um, you know, Tiger Calico at the network level. And this is a testimonial from Atlassian, from a senior team leader at Atlassian on how Tiger Calico uh, helped us, or helped them, uh, sorry, uh, helped them achieve um, uh, network isolation. So I talked about uh, you know network policies, right? So network policies helps you block traffic between you know namespaces and you know, uh, but th th there's also a challenge with creating network policies. Uh, one of the challenges things like managing IP blocks, right? So uh, IP blocks when it comes to managing ingress and e egresses, right? So it can get a bit repetitive and cumbersome. Uh, imagine someone sitting there and just, you know, managing all the CIDR blocks, and uh, it's, it's, not some, it's, it's not fun, right? So um, there are definitely better options, and one, one such option is uh, the idea of a service mesh. So service mesh, it creates a logical boundary for your traffic, right? With traffic between, between your services, and it achieves this by using virtual services and virtual routers, virtual nodes. And the, the main thing to remember or, or keep in mind is, you can create fine-grained destination routes and rules with service mesh. You can do things like you know, uh, rate limiting uh, using quota rules, and uh, you can do uh, things like deny rules, a, a better version of you know, uh, whitelisting and blacklisting, unlike uh, with, with uh, network policies. 
So these are some of the examples of um, service mesh. AWS has uh, app mesh and then Istio, console, Linkerd. Superglue is a really uh, interesting project. It provides uh, orchestration of multiple meshes. So something, uh, you know, if you're interested, you can check, check that out. And these are some of the features of service meshes, right? So it provides load balancing, uh, you know, things like routing, circuit breaking, you know, obfuscation, service discovery, right? And I'm not going to, uh, you know, talk about all these in detail because these are, you know, inbuilt features of uh, service mesh. But uh, my main focus here is to talk about multi-tenancy with the service mesh, right? So things like tenant routing. So how can you create, you know, intelligent routes to manage traffic between service mesh uh, silos? Network isolation, I, you know, I've been talking about network isolation for the past few minutes. So with a service mesh, think about, uh, I mean, do you need one control plane and multiple meshes per tenant, or do you create one control plane and a mesh per tenant, right? So, so when, you, when you design systems, like, you, you need to think about all that. And then you can further obfuscate, you know, uh, with a service mesh, you can encapsulate all the tenant activity, you know, with, within a service mesh, uh, service mesh silo. Things like service discovery and canary deployments is where you get A-B style uh, testing and you can create uh, canary style deployment rules. And obviously multi-region is where, uh, you know, you can extend your mesh across Kubernetes clusters uh, so that you get better disaster recovery and things like, you know, multi-region deployments. Tenant tiering and quality. So this is, if you're a SaaS provider, this is probably one of the most important topics that, you know, uh, that you have to keep in mind, you know, because this is where you can control the amount of resources uh, that, that a particular tenant uh, would consume, right? Because when you have uh, you know, several users or teams of users or tenants sharing one cluster uh, with a fixed number of nodes, there can be a fair concern that you know, one tenant may use more than their fair share of resources, right? So that's where, you know, so Kubernetes provides several options and one of the options is uh, you know, something called resource quotas. So resource quotas, it helps you limit the amount of um, resource a particular a tenant can consume. And it does this by setting quotas and limits on things like, you know, you can control things like CPU or memory or storage. But on top of that, it lets you limit the type of resource you can create. For example, uh, you know, if you, if you want a tenant not to spin up more than 10 pods or, you know, five or 10 pods uh, in their cluster, you can actually define a hard limit, uh, you know, in a resource quota definition file. You can do things like performance and, uh, you know, enforced performance and capacity tiering for CPU memory and storage, manage tenant pod prioritization. And this last point here is probably one of the most important one because if you set the advent, one of the biggest advantage of uh, setting resource quotas is you can minimize the blast radius when there is one particular tenant consume, consuming, you know, more than their fair share of resources. When there's an overconsumption event, resource quotas helps you uh, you know, uh, define that limit. And what happens to that tenant is like if they're over-consuming on CPU, they'll get uh, uh, throttled. If they, if they are over-consuming on memory, they'll just get an error. And this is an example of resource quota. And here you can see that uh, I'm setting a hard limit of, you know, five uh, for, you know, and uh, five for the number of parts. And then I'm limiting uh, the CPU, uh, the maximum is two and, um, and, and the memory limit is four gigs. So I talked about resource quotas and how resource quotas would, you know, help you, uh, you know, manage and restrict uh, a tenant's resource consumption. Um, but let's say there's a tenant that has to meet like strict uh, regulatory uh, requirements. They want to run their uh, workloads in, on an isolated node uh, where they don't want to share, you know, their, their workloads with any other tenant, right? 
So, Kubernetes uh, provides a feature called node affinity, right? So, which constrains which nodes a tenant's pods would be deployed to, right? And you can achieve this by using labels and selectors. It also, in a Kubernetes, in a Kubernetes also provides another feature called pod, pod affinity and pod anti-affinity. What this is, is it's a, you know, it's a set of rules that you can specify, you know, how a tenant pod should be placed in relation to a you know, different tenant, uh, tenant's pod. But the fundamental idea here is, you know, you're preventing the scheduling of, uh, a, a, you know, a tenant pod on the same node as, a, you know, as that of a different tenant's pod. You, you, you're creating that uh, isolation for your, you know, uh, special, special uh, tenants, um, you know. So, um, so this is uh, very similar to the previous uh, slide, right? Uh, the objective is very similar because, uh, you know, there's a tenant. So let's say there's a tenant that wants to run like a high uh, CPU intensive uh, uh, workload, right? Or maybe there is a tenant that, that says, hey, I want my pod or I want my workload to be placed on a node that has a solid state drive or an SSD. How would you enforce that, right? So Kubernetes provides, you know, features like uh, taints and tolerations uh, where taint is, it lets you taint or mark a node so that the Kubernetes scheduler exactly, know, uh, exactly knows which pods it should place on the node and which pods it, sh it should not. And toleration is it lets you designate pods, uh, you know, that can go on a specific uh, tainted node. And if you think about this, this is, uh, you know, exactly the opposite of what I was describing earlier with node affinity, right? With node affinity, you have a set of pods getting attracted towards a node. But with taints and tolerations, you have a node that's basically rippling away pods uh, unless or until it finds a corresponding pod or a pod with the corresponding toleration, right? So, so, so very similar objective, but the way it works is, you know, exactly the opposite, right? And this is how you do it. I mean, kubectl taint nodes, uh, you would provide the node name, and then you would provide a key and a value, right? And then when you define a pod, you, you need to actually uh, add a toleration section where you, where you specify the key and the value that you used to taint that particular node. So, so this way, when, when the Kubernetes uh, scheduler uh, sees this pod coming into the queue, it would exactly know which node it should place this workload or it should place this pod onto. Managing eviction through priority, and so, so this is a classic uh, tiering example or, or use case where, so let's say you have, you're a SaaS provider and you have tenants in three different tiers, like basic, advanced, or premium, and uh, you want to provide more value for your premium users, right? Because obviously they pay more money. Um, so, so what you can do is, you can set their pods uh, with a priority. So priority is just a number; it's just a numerical value uh, that you can set. Um, and what it indicates is it indicates the importance of one pod in relation to a different pod. So, for example, a higher priority pod would be placed in front of the queue. So now the Kubernetes scheduler it maintains a scheduling queue, and it you know that's how it places all all the requests uh, that you know that you know that it, it has in the queue onto the nodes. Um, so when it sees a higher priority pod, you know it goes in front of the queue and it gets more preference over the lower priority pods. And priority tenants are based on plant tiers. So this is something you know which I already covered. So if you want to give more value for your premium users, uh, you, you know you can set a high priority for those uh, uh, for those pods. So preemption uh, it's an interesting uh, uh, technique where so let's say you're running a cluster and it's running into some kind of a space issue, right? 
and um, uh, you know, uh, and a higher priority part comes into the queue at the same time. What 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 happens is the Kubernetes scheduler would actually evict a lower priority uh, part from the node, and it would replace that with this high priority part. It sounds cruel, but that, you know that, that's how it works. Uh, but one thing you need to um, be mindful of is how you assign these uh, priority values, because if you assign a high priority uh, value for, um, you know, for for, so let's say a workload or a part for a tenant that's in the basic tier, so it can potentially evict, you know, uh, other tenant uh, other tenants' parts, which 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 is something you don't want, right? So it can cause a lot of noise in the cluster if you don't assign the priority values properly. Graceful tenant task termination for preemption victims. So, so every part has a graceful uh, task termination period. So the default in Kubernetes is 30 seconds. So it's, it's, it's a time when the part is being preempted. And uh, so when a part is getting preempted, it, it has 30 seconds to go back into the scheduling queue to be eventually placed back into the node. So now that may not work for uh, you know, uh, all the tenants. So some tenants would be just running stateless apps, right? And they would be like, okay, I don't want that 30 seconds limit. So what you need to do is lower that limit to maybe zero or maybe to a really low number so that those victim parts or preempted parts can go back into the queue pretty quickly to be eventually placed back into the node, right? So something you need to keep in mind when you're working with priority, you know, priority values or priority and preemption. So with this, I, I, I want to hand it over back to Judah to talk about uh, storage isolation. Thanks, Rajith. Uh, so now that Rajith covered uh, some of the considerations for network isolation and uh, you know for compute isolation and tiering, I want to talk to you about how to achieve some of the, the corresponding requirements that you have for storage isolation for multi-tenancy. So I'm going to cover three core concepts here with you. Um, uh, there's a lot more to it than that, but one is going to be subfolder and folder isolation. One's going to be uh, persistent volume isolation. Uh, which is uh, you know a volume like an you know EFS cluster or a EBS volume per tenant, and AWS resource isolation, such as like using AWS resources like Amazon's S3 or you know DynamoDB through um, AWS and identity and access management roles. So, let's start by talking about um, how you achieve it with the folder, subfolder, and the volume. So, artifact roles are this concept that limit the physical volumes a tenant namespace can access. So the namespace for all intents and purposes, is our tenant. Um, and PVC claims can limit a tenant's access to NFS volume subfolders through Kubernetes role-based access control. So PVC claims are a little bit of the secret sauce here. Now, but one important distinction to be aware of is storage classes exist at the cluster level, but not at the namespace. So the way that you need to do this is actually to deny, uh, you, you need to uh, use storage resource quotas specifically to limit it uh, based on the specific namespace. And to deny a specific namespace specifically to a specific storage, if for example, like, you know, one tenant can absolutely never access this other one, which is pretty common in a multi-tenant design, you uh, set the resource quota to zero for that storage class. So that's one approach. Let's talk about now the AWS approach for managing resources in AWS. So 
Um, many of you may be familiar with a solution called KIAM or Cubed IAM, which is our legacy of uh, open source solution that was leveraged by our customers and our ISVs to be able to provide access to identity and access management roles within AWS IAM that are scoped to tenancy. Now, recently, AWS came out with this new AWS IAM roles for service accounts feature, which allows you to give um, pods in a namespace access to a specific AWS IAM role that's scoped to a tenant. And the reason why this is really valuable is because you could go ahead and create a role for, let's say, Amazon's S3 and say that that role in AWS IAM could only access a tag of uh, you know, you know, assets that have a tag uh, within S3 of tenant identifier like one, or where it's a prefix like slash tenant one or slash a GUID that would be specifically for that tenant. So this makes pods a first class citizen in IAM, and this is important. Uh, more importantly than that, um, it allows AWS Identity APIs to recognize Kubernetes pods, which is going to give us the opportunity to introduce a large number of features as we start to, um, you know, start to, you know, introduce this, and uh, you know, uh, it penetrates our, our platform more uh, more richly through the next year. Um, one consideration to think about here is um, you could actually leverage service accounts. And um, you know, with um, OpenID Connect, which is uh, an identity provider that allows you to federate through JSON web tokens, which are uh, an approach for uh, securing uh, client-side authentication for a user. And what's interesting is you could actually now go ahead and um, use account, service account annotations um, to use these IAM roles at the pod level and send this request completely downstream. So what you could do is you could say, I'm going to um, ensure that for every request, the JWT is what's used to scope the access to these credentials at runtime, which is pretty valuable as well. And the way that this works is um, you exchange the OIDC JSON web token with what we call security token service credentials. These are temporary credentials, not long running like AWS SDK access and secret keys. These are temporary access secret key, which includes session duration and a session token. And the great thing here is that you can um, ultimately use these SES credentials um, within your pods to be able to access S3 from your applications. Um, one, one big key differentiator between this and some of the open source products that do something similar is that we are actually hosting this on the EKS control plane, and we're managing it on your behalf, so it's additionally secure because you can't control that master. Um, so here's an example uh, for how you could actually implement it. So um, you can see here that I have tenant one role. I could name that whatever I want, but that's the, the easiest way to see that I specifically have tenant one role, which is a specific role for tenant one that's allocated to tenant one dash service account one. Why did, uh, why did I have dash service account one, you might ask? So typically for compliance, uh, the regulatory authorities require you to know um, what's happening at a service account or a, a you know, deployment or an application level. So because of that, the distinction and best practice is always to have a service account within a tenant per microservice or per past workload that your customer has. So a big, a big thing that each of you want to know is how could I not spend a lot of money on this? Um, or how could I operationally, um, um, you know, operationalize this uh, past solution for cost? So I want to talk about some of the design considerations. So, Resource aggregation is an important concept. So imagine that you have three nodes that are underutilized significantly. 
That means that you can't charge your customers for that capacity and it's wasting your money. Now, you still need a certain amount of excess capacity to scale, right? Across the horizontal pod autoscaler and the cluster autoscaler, we all know. But one clear important thing to remember is you don't want to leave too much excess capacity because then you're paying idly. So you've gone ahead and meter the cluster usage, the CPU, the memory, the storage for each tenant. In the next slide, I'll describe how you could do that. You're going to develop tiering strategies and you're going to develop budgets. So I want to give a great example that I have with a lot of the ISVs that are exposing PaaS solutions. Many of these uh, providers are looking for a free tier. The free tier costs them money out of their marketing budget, typically, or you know, maybe out of the sales organization. And this is literally like uh, they're not obtaining any potential like revenue from that free tier. So one of the key things to think about is if you deliver, deliver a specific budget per that plan type, then you know that the free tier will never exceed excess amount of capacity above a specified threshold of X amount of dollars. And that's why that's valuable. Develop performance and tenant SLA tiering is important. So one of the ways to differentiate your products is by providing better SLAs for customers that pay more, right? It's just a typical tiering strategy. What you're gonna do, after you grab these metrics, is you're going to use this information, this metering information, on, that's you know pulled on a regular basis to drive what we call entitlements. Entitlements is um, likely um, you know um, some type of document that says customer with this following identifier has access to the following resources, um, and this is what they're entitled to use. So what you could do is you could say this customer has exceeded their capacity and you can communicate to your insider field sales organization that they need to go ahead and promote that customer to the next tier through sales conversations. Alternatively, if it's consumption-based pricing, you're likely using that for showback to prove to them that they're using that consumption and to charge them back, right? Because if you're charging them on a consumption basis, let's say based on the number of CPU cores and the amount of memory for gigabytes, you need to be able to do that and you'll show that to them also for compliance. So one key thing to remember here, we talk about all of these concepts and they all combine to one typical strategy that our SaaS factory team has branded cost per tenant. Cost per tenant is aligning your cost structure in AWS to the cost structure required for how you're going to monetize the offering. So if you are paying most of your money is going to CPU and memory and storage, that means you want to meter CPU, memory, and storage, and charge your customer likely some type of additional margin on top of what AWS is charging you. That is cost per tenant. So you're going to tie the consumption to native Kubernetes constructs. And you can do this through pods, persistent volumes, you know, storage classes, um, and other resources as well. OK, so now that we talked about why and, and kind of conceptually you know, you know, what, what to do, we're going to talk about how to do it. So um, Kubernetes has an API and a metric server that exposes metrics for like name, you know, pods in a namespace and amount of compute and memory. So what you could do is you could expose these cube state metrics through solutions such as Prometheus or through CloudWatch Container Insights, which is a, a new feature that we have within Amazon's CloudWatch that exposes metrics for uh, not just uh, you know, Kubernetes uh, that's uh, in Amazon EKS, but native Kubernetes as well as through, uh, you know, through ECS. Um, and what you're going to do is you're going to expose um, the number of pods per hour, the pod usage per hour. So 
if you have, let's say, five pods, and that pod, each part of those has like one CPU and one gig of memory, you know you have five CPUs and five gigs of memory for that specific interval of that hour. So you know how much it costs you because then you could pull the EC2 instance type and you know, know exactly how much it's costing you to operate that customer. Then you need some way to digest these metrics in real time. And that's where an analytics pipeline comes in. So you likely have some Lambda functions to expose metrics. Maybe these are API invocations within your application and you're gonna correlate those API requests uh, to that corresponding infrastructure cost or potentially you'll regularly pull for those metrics as well. Um, so one, there's two typical approaches. So polling is, I wanna get it at this moment in time. How much are they using? That's one strategy for monetization. The other approach is, when did my container start? When did it stop? How many minutes did they consume? Because in EC2, you could charge at a per minute level, right? That's how we, we can monetize the offering ourselves. So potentially, you want a meter and sell to your customer at a per minute level as well. Um, you'll pull tenant metrics into some real-time dashboard. Uh, and sorry, an analytics pipeline like Kinesis uh, with Kinesis Analytics and maybe like you know, Elasticsearch with Kibana. And you'll digest these metrics into some type of consumption unit. This is your billable unit. So you've aggregated the records, you've made intelligence of them, you know how you want to sell, and then you're going to go ahead and create some type of dimension. Dimension, for those not familiar with subscription billing vendors, is it's this technical concept that applies pretty much to a SKU or a feature within a larger product listing. So you might have, like, let's say, 24 dimensions that could be supported in one product listing in AWS Marketplace if you're selling a SaaS product, right? So each one of those is monetized at a different price. So if somebody consumes three units of feature A, that's a specific price for feature A. So a great example of this is, um, you know, in AWS Marketplace is Dynatrace. So Dynatrace is a, is a vendor that, that sells on the AWS Marketplace uh, that monetizes based on their corresponding features. Um, and then finally, uh, you're going to send these records to that billing API with the intent of having that bill show up. Um, so there's a, another approach that I want you to be aware of. So my approach is conceptual. I want to go into a, a little bit more tangible approach for just a moment here because this is a thing that I hear quite often from customers. So Slalom is a system integrator, an AWS partner, who I've uh, actually written and authored a blog post that I had reviewed as well with our, AP, uh, with our APN SaaS factory team. And what they did was they decided to expose the number of API requests processed and the execution time per use case, and they correlated that to the amount of CPU and memory that that specific use case would leverage. How did they do that? So they had to expose it both at the database invocation layer, maybe through the DAO layer, as well as through the service invocation layer as well. So they exposed things such as domain, timestamp, tenant ID, metrics. They also exposed those same metrics I just talked to you about before, like CPU, memory, storage, um, and then they, what they did was they aggregated these all into these specific metrics, where these metrics potentially could be those dimensions or SKUs that we talked about earlier for the intent of billing the customer. One key item here is um, cost per tenant is a much broader conversation than just Kubernetes. You have to think about a large number of AWS services. Two services to think about that I often hear from customers is how do I do uh, multi-tenant you know, S3 buckets? You know, and, and it's really challenging to meter S3 buckets, unless you have some type of um, you know, proxy that's actually metering those requests. So what Slalom did was they suggested single-tenant S3 buckets in CloudFront distributions per tenant. Now, there may be reasons why that doesn't fit the architecture that you want, 
but it simplified their architecture. So here's kind of how their end state looks for, from an, a real-time analytics pipeline perspective for digesting these metrics. I'll give each of you an opportunity to take a screenshot if you want. You can also find this as well on the APN blog. Just search slalom cost per tenant. Wait another minute. Um, okay, so let's get into some advanced architectures. Um, so hardware isolation. So Containers have a lot of limitations. Those familiar with the Kubernetes CVEs, the Docker CVEs, you know there's a lot of limitations in containers, especially in Docker containers. So hardware isolation gives you the ability um, to have an additional layer of isolation and restriction for the containers that you're operating through um, what we call CATA containers, which is an open source project and global community working to build a standard implementation for running lightweight virtual machines. And what we did was we built a solution called Firecracker, which could be actually introduced into Kubernetes, right, uh, with the opportunity for you to create micro virtual machines in Kubernetes and power those Docker workloads within that specific micro VM. This allows you to have hardware level isolation at the VM level, and this is actually what AWS is doing for Lambda and for Fargate. So if you'd wanna take this to the next level, and you say, I have really, really hard boundaries. This, you could take the concepts we applied earlier and mesh them into this. And here's an example of how the Firecracker architecture looks. Um, so Firecracker architecture, you have this, this guest, um, which is like a guest operating system. That's, uh, you know, and, then, and that's a micro VM that's encapsulated with the, the, the specific um, you know, hypervisor sitting underneath within that EC2 instance node on that worker node of the Kubernetes cluster. Within that guest, that's where you place the Docker container or the pod. Okay, so one other cool feature. So this is something that's not quite in production yet, but um, ALB, for those familiar with application load balancer and the ingress controller, many of you know ingress controller allows you to route requests into your cluster through a layer seven load balancer. Now, one big challenge that a lot we've heard from our customers is that I have to create an ALB per deployment. So that means that I have 60 ALBs if I have 60 potential customers or 60 workloads. And that's really hard to scale, right? So what we're doing with the version two, that's still kind of in its alpha stage, but will hopefully be out at some point within the next couple months, is we're allowing you to use uh, target groups based on a distinction of a path like slash tenant one, domain.com slash tenant one or slash tenant two, HTTP header like X, uh, massing it through an HTTP header like X dash tenant ID equals to one, or alternatively a host header, tenant one dot domain dot com. And we could do this through um, target groups. So target groups are this group within ALB, and the ALB ingress controller with version two through annotations in Kubernetes will actually allow you to create these specific groups in a dynamic way. And this is super valuable. It, there are some limitations. Uh, right now, application load balancer supports 100 of these rules. So if you have more than 100 tenants, there are some constraints, and that's where service mesh routing comes in, and it could scale much further. But, but this is a, a really great consideration to think about as you start to redesign your architectures for 2020. Um, okay, one other uh, advanced topic here is vertical pod autoscaler for database isolation. So, Vertical pod autoscaler automatically adjusts the CPU and memory reservations for pods to help right-size your applications. This can free up CPU and memory, but really what I want to talk about it for is 
it can allow you to scale your database deployments in Kubernetes, and this is super cool. From those familiar with stateful sets that are used typically for Kubernetes databases, right, that are deployed within Kubernetes, one of the challenges you have is it's really hard to scale vertically up and down the amount of computed memory allocated for a database. And if let's say you use a database deployment within a stateful set per multiple tenants, you need to scale that amount of capacity to scale to the number of tenants that you're operating within that, that specific database deployment or cluster. So vertical pod autoscaler is a feature, again, that's still kind of in the works, but will allow you to do that. And it'll allow you to do this based on a dedicated database volume per tenant, or also within a multi-tenant database deployment. So again, the key idea here is the horizontal pod autoscaler scales the number of pods horizontally across a number of pods. The vertical autoscaler doesn't change the number of pods. What it does is it adds more compute and memory to it as it's running. Okay, so there's a lot we didn't cover. Um, and I apologize, but it's a 16 minute session and I'm almost out of time. But we didn't cover um, some concepts that are advanced for monitoring. Things such as like, uh, how do you do tracing? How do you do real time obs observability of like, you know, tenant one reaching into tenant two? How do you do auditing and logging at a, in a multi-tenant world within Kubernetes? Right? Um, it's just unfortunately we didn't have enough time. We didn't talk about like things such as the open policy agent, uh, which is going to be a new uh, new thing that will hopefully allow us to uh, ensure more um, kind of more like multi-tenant design native within the Kubernetes primitives. Um, we didn't cover things such as um, hierarchical namespaces, which is in the works. This is kind of nested tenancy within namespaces, which is super cool, and that's coming out. We didn't talk talk about um, Gatekeeper and. Um, you know, and, and other approaches for pod security policies and how things are changing. Many of you that attended KubeCon likely know that things are, are shifting quite a bit from pod security policies and, and later iterations, and we just couldn't cover that today. Image scanning is something we didn't cover. So ECR, uh, for those not familiar, is a uh, container registry like Docker Hub, right, that we have within uh, AWS. And image scanning is something that you could do to make sure that your dependencies are approved and that they're compliant. More importantly, it ensures an adequate DevSecOps pipeline uh, that will go through your continuous integration and deployment del and delivery pipelines. More importantly, we didn't cover DevOps really at all. And uh, I wish we could, but this is a multi-tenant talk. It's not a DevOps talk. Um, so there's a lot more we didn't cover either, but it's really important for you to make sure to take a couple things away. One thing you need to take away is there is no native support for multi-tenancy in Kubernetes. You can only achieve this through some of the primitives that we just provided, some of the open source community tools, things that we didn't mention, but you gotta do it yourself. Also, there's a whole bunch of community tools. Tigera Secure will allow you to do encryption per tenant within across different namespaces to ensure network traffic um, you know, isolation at the encryption level. So the community has a whole bunch of products you need to explore those products because Kubernetes alone is not sufficient. Never expose the API in a public pass. If it's an internal business unit pass, that's a different story if you're a customer. But if you're exposing this as like a Heroku-style platform, you never expose that specific service account to a customer. Instead, you pull those secrets and you dynamically, um, you dynamically invoke the API on their behalf. I wanted to make sure that each of you learn about the CVEs that are out there that I didn't have time to cover. There are a lot of them. So please dive deep on Kubernetes much more than what we covered today. You could talk to Ranjith and I after this session. And finally, make sure you have a silo pipeline. With that said, I want to show you some related sessions. Uh, we have a whole bunch of SaaS content. Um, hopefully this was exciting to you and, and there's a whole bunch of content that we're having this week. 
I have a couple sessions uh, Wednesday and Thursday that are Chalk Talks. They're going to be more interactive. You can ask questions. You can, you can get involved. Ask your like, real tangible problems that you've been having, and we can answer them. Um, finally, I want to thank you for this session. But before I have you leave, I want you to pick up your phones for me for just one moment. Everyone pick up their phone. And I want you to bring up the mobile app. And please rate us, because um, if you've liked the content that we've covered today, we really want to be able to present it more to additional customers within the ecosystem. So thank you so much, and have a wonderful day today.